Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 11. It goes to 11 of the Fantasy Law Guy podcast. I'm Nick Grisco at Fantasy Law Guy on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. It's tight end time. Hakeem dropped the ball! Hakeem dropped the ball! He did what? Playoffs? What do talk about? Playoffs? Who the hell is Mel Kiper? They are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. It's my quarterback. What the hell's going on out here? Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Can't wait. You like that? You like that? Just keep a trick the ball down the field, boys. I saw, son. I saw. Hello? You play to win the game. Hardly. Sends the Saints to the Super Bowl. It has been a while since I've taken up Instagram questions. I keep wanting to answer them at the end of each show, but I always run out of time. I have been told a few times that I can be a little bit long-winded, and that is certainly an understatement. So I am devoting this show to answering audience questions because I do, in fact, love the listeners that I do have. And we have some hugely loaded, enormous Instagram questions to get to today, and two of them are about tight ends. So I'll be spending most of today's show covering that position in detail. Before we do that, let's go over the fantasy news. I am beyond thrilled that this is football season and this is fantasy draft season and we are here. But first, it seems like we need to get through the COVID season because already 30 some players have opted out of the 2020 season due to the risk of COVID-19. Sorry guys, I gotta sit this one out. And we have our first landmine of the 2020 season fantasy football season. This is colossal, groundbreaking, shape-shifting news. Damian Williams is opting out of the 2020 season, and he was expected to start the season in a timeshare with Chiefs first-round rookie running back Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel-Air. And now Clyde Edwards-Hilaire gets to look at his kingdom, he is finally here, and he will sit on his throne as the lead back in the Chiefs offense. An offense led by Andy Reid, who has produced a running back one in 12 of the last 15 seasons, and Pat Mahomes, whose presence alone will mean ample goal line opportunities and plenty of receptions. So Edwards Hilaire, he's only 5'7", 207. He rushed for 1,400 yards last year, 16 touchdowns on 6.6 yards a carry in the greatest college offense of all time. He proved to be a reliable pass catcher, and that's one of the things that's going to make him so valuable in fantasy this year. He recorded 55 receptions on 64 targets last year for the Tigers, 453 yards in 2019, receiving yards that is. He isn't particularly fast. He's not particularly athletic. He only ran a 4.640, but he possesses great balance, and he's got a really low center of gravity. It makes him difficult to bring down an open space. And it, it is worth questioning 
whether his lack of explosiveness will make his transition to the NFL tougher, kind of like we saw with David Montgomery last season. Ew, David. I think Edward Tillaire and, and Montgomery actually have pretty similar skill sets. In, in my opinion, but unlike Montgomery, Edwards Hilaire is entering a mouth-watering situation rather than a dumpster fire, and he's projected to be the three-down back in the league's best offense. So Damian Williams last year, in his 10 regular season games, plus three playoff games, if you exclude the early exit, he left the Chargers, one of the Chargers games early. So in his 10 regular season games and three playoff games, games that he started and finished, he averaged 16.28 points per game. That was RB12 pace. And a lot of people think that Damian Williams was a flop last year, and he was in the regular season. But in the final five games, which is two regular season games and three playoff games, Damian Williams scored 122.5 fantasy points. He, in those five games, he averaged 24.5 points per game. That's RB2 pace behind Christian McCaffrey. So this is an outstanding opportunity for Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and, and a guy who Chiefs general manager Brett Veach, after the draft when they took him 32 overall, said that Clyde reminds him of Brian Westbrook, who was obviously a versatile fantasy stud for Andy Reid for years. And Andy Reid hasn't invested in a running back like this since LaShawn McCoy in 2009 when he was drafted 53 overall, and we all saw how that turned out. And we've seen this story before, too, with Andy Reid, when Kareem Hunt led the league in rushing as a rookie under Andy Reid, and Kareem Hunt that year was actually supposed to open the season as the backup and split work with Spencer Ware. And Ware tore his ACL in preseason, and the rest was history, that thrusted Kareem Hunt into the lead role. And now we're actually seeing a very similar situation play out where Damian Williams was likely going to start for the Chiefs this year. At least initially, this was going to be a timeshare. But after opting out, now Edwards Hilaire is the guy in Kansas City. So we know this pushes up Edwards Hilaire in the draft. And, and prior to this news, his average draft position was about 27th overall. And in experts drafts and high-stakes leagues, he was a very popular pick at the round 2-3 turn, kind of picks 23 through 26. But the question is, how much of a jump does Edward Zelaer make here? The vast majority of experts' early takes on this news, and this just broke like two hours ago uh, from when I'm recording this, is that they are pushing him into round one. Without question, viewing Edward Zelaer as a top 12 pick overall. So let's say that Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley, Ezekiel Elliott, and maybe Kamara are the tier one running backs. They're going to go picks one through four in most formats. And then Derrick Henry and Dalvin Cook, pending his holdout, are the tier two running backs. And I think many people will throw Michael Thomas in there, especially in PPR league. So that's seven players. And then I kind of see Clyde Edwards-Hilaire slotting in somewhere around seven or eight overall. So certainly a case can be made that Clyde is a better pick than Joe Mixon. I mean, Clyde's situation is just 100 times better than Mixon's in Cincinnati. And Mixon is seen as, by expert consensus, that he's the next best running back taken after that Dalvin Cook, after Derrick Henry. So the same can be said for the other tier three running backs, where I'd rather 
the Fresh Prince than Miles Sanders, Kenyon Drake. Boy, I'm really starting to dislike the Drake. Hate the Drake. <laughs> Nick Chubb, Josh Jacobs, Aaron Jones, Austin Eckler. So this is now a situation where Clyde Edwards-Elair is going to be probably the highest drafted rookie in fantasy football since Ezekiel Elliott came out. So yeah, this is huge news. It's very exciting stuff because especially if you end up with picks 7 through 9 in your drafts, it gives you a running back solution. You don't have to reach for a running back you possibly could have had in round 2 like the guys I just said above. Other impacts, DeAndre Washington was brought over from the Raiders. He's now the backup. I don't know if he's going to assume as much work as Damian Williams would have. I don't think DeAndre Washington is going to start over Clyde Edwards-Hilaire like I do think Damian Williams would have, at least initially. But he'll be Clyde's backup, and he's got good pass-catching chops. Because of his upside, if Clyde were to go down, I think he's worth a pick anytime after pick 100. And the Chiefs could elect to sign Devonta Freeman as a veteran back or Lamar Miller. And that shouldn't surprise anyone because this was the same team that signed LaShawn McCoy a week before the regular season started last year. And he split the workload with Williams for like 11 weeks before he was finally phased out. So Damian Williams headlines these opt-outs because he's the first player whose decision directly impacts the fantasy football landscape. And it's bittersweet because I feel for the almost Super Bowl MVP that Damian Williams was and, but this news is really setting the tone, and it's the first big news to break. And it kind of feels to me that now the fantasy football season in 2020 is finally officially here. And of course, the first big news of the season has to be COVID-related. But there are, pl- there are many more players, like I mentioned, who have opted out already. And there are more who are going to opt out. The players have until August 3rd to designate if they are opting out for this season. And I'll quickly go through the rest of the players that I think are notable from a fantasy perspective. And Patriots right tackle Marcus Cannon and fullback Dan Vitale, they have opted out for the 2020 season. That's a critical blow to the Patriots offensive line and their running game. Marcus Cannon Easily an above-average quality starter at right tackle. And they will have to have a camp competition for his vacant spot now. There's no obvious in-house replacement there. And the Patriots use fullbacks more than most teams. So Dan Vitale's loss should not go unstated for this running game. And speaking of this running game, the Athletics' Jeff Howe, Patriots' beat writer, he reported that Sony Michelle is uncertain for the start of football activities. Michelle is coming off a foot surgery, yet another surgery for this guy. It's a sad situation because he was so great at UGA, and the injuries in the NFL have just piled out to the point where He's lost all of his explosiveness. And he's also a zero in the passing game. So his, his average draft position has creeped up a little bit. Not substantially, but creeped up a little bit once Cam Newton signed because I think the experts thought it may spark some life into this otherwise dormant offense. But then Rex Burkhead restructured his contract to stay in New England. 
And then Damian Harris, last year's third-round pick, he should play more of a role. This has running back by committee written all over it. And Belichick loves to play the matchups. I am out on Sony Michelle right now. I have him lower than his consensus ADP or where the experts have him. And this backfield, I'm out on this backfield as a whole. I mean, especially in light of the new COVID opt-outs that I just mentioned. I think losing Marcus Cannon and Dan Vitale, that's a ding to Cam Newton as well. So wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, Marquise Goodwin has also opted out for the 2020 season due to the coronavirus pandemic. He is doing this because he just has a newborn in his family, and the Eagles are addicted to losing wide receivers. I mean, I swear, Goodwin was traded for to kind of be Deshaun Jackson's insurance policy, and now the Eagles will have to rely on Deshaun Jackson staying healthy, which is a long shot, but then Alshon Jeffrey also likely to open the season on PUP. And they have rookie J.J. Ortega-Whiteside and Jalen Rager competing for the other spot. And this feels like the Eagles are going to lead the league in two tight end sets once again and throw a lot of passes to tight ends and running backs. So moving on, wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers, Devin Funches, he's also opting out. He essentially opted out of playing last season as well. And, and that may be a little harsh. He, he was hurt in Indy, but he was all set to duke it out with Alan Le, Lazard. You don't even know my real name. I'm the Lizard King. For the wide receiver two position for Aaron Rodgers. And that's an opportunity that used to carry a lot of water. It used to carry a lot of fantasy value. Now it does not. And we can thank Matt LaFleur for that one. I think this helps the stock of Lazard as well as tight end Jay Sternberger, who we have not discussed on the show yet, but he may be on the redraft map as a tight end two in deeper or best ball formats. Maybe we'll get to him later today. So there's also some key defensive starters, some longtime staples of this New England defense. Linebacker Donta Hightower and safety Pat Chung, they're also opting out. And this definitely is a sting for the New England Patriots defense slash special teams. So I think it's enough for me to move the Steelers up as my DST1, though I can't imagine I'm going to be in position to draft either of them in, in any league I am in. But the Bears' defensive slash special teams is also taking hit. They're losing stud, run-stuffing, nose-tackle Eddie Goldman. He's opting out. I actually liked targeting the Bears' defense as a bounce-back defense in drafts this year, but this kind of takes some wind out of the sails because he has such an important role on that defense. And the Bills' defense also loses a defensive tackle. Star Lutalele, he's a good run defender. He's a starting defensive tackle for the Bills. He's not as impactful as Goldman is for Chicago, and, but the Bills do have some depth at the position. And then another defensive tackle, and, and this may be a theme with players who I mentioned who are overweight. They have more comorbidities for making this COVID virus riskier for them. So another defensive tackle, nose tackle, Michael Pierce of the Vikings is opting out as well. He was brought in to replace Linval Joseph this offseason, who's been a standout run defender for the Vikings for years. And the Vikings defense has just been decimated. I mean, I realize that they have been a top 10 fantasy option in terms of their defense for the last few years under Mike Zimmer, but you should not be targeting them in your drafts this season. 
They lost their starting three cornerbacks, Xavier Rose, Trey Waynes, and Mackenzie Alexander. Linval Joseph is gone. Now Michael Pierce's replacement at defense tackle is gone. Everson Griffin, their second-best pass rusher on their team, he's a free agent. So now all they have is Eric Kendricks, Daniil Hunter, and two safeties in Anthony Harris and Harrison Smith. Those are four great players, but that's it. They really have no one else, and they have no depth at the position as well. I mean, on defense as well. This unit may struggle in 2020, and, and that would actually help Kirk Cousins. You like that? You like that? And Adam Thielen in the Vikings passing game. Because they were able to run Dalvin Cook at will last season, and I don't think Gameflow will allow them to do that. I think they're going to be forced to shift to throwing more. So let's shift gears a little away from COVID. Speaking on Tuesday, I don't know why I emphasize Tuesday so much, but speaking on Tuesday, 49ers general manager John Lynch said it was fair to say that Debo Samuel might miss some time in the regular season. This falls right in line with my expectation on Samuel when it happened. This is shaping up to be another win for the injury pessimist in me. And I'm out on Debo Samuel, as I've said before. I think he is going to miss games. And even when he does return, he may not have the same explosiveness. This is something where the Niners could take it slow with their young player. His average draft position somehow remains in like round nine. Like it didn't fall that much. He fell like a couple rounds which I think is ridiculous and and somewhat stubborn. And and considering that, he likely won't be on my draft board at all. So let's move on. NFL Network's Tom Pelissero confirms that Steelers running back James Conner is not expected to opt out for the 2020 season. This is excellent news. I mentioned in my last episode that it was possible he could opt out because he's had cancer before, making him a higher risk. But he has a lot on the line this season. He's in a contract year. He wants to show that he can stay healthy and be the bell cow back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So we will move on there. Uh, that is good news that James Conner is not going to opt out and that he feels comfortable enough with his health, having recovered from cancer, that he does. he's able to take this type of risk playing this season. So according to the Akron Beacon Journal in Cleveland, the Browns wide receiver Jarvis Landry's week one status is, his biggest, is the biggest concern for the Browns' passing offense. And I agree. Landry had hip surgery this offseason, and he was reportedly at the time going to be questionable for the start of the season. Everyone seems to be forgetting this. It's not being talked about among the experts in the community at all. Everyone's just kind of treating him like they would normally. And they're talking about, I mean, a common theme among the industry is all these experts talking about how they're getting such a great discount the classic Jarvis Landry discount where they always get him later and he always outproduces his ADP. But it will also be a recurring theme on this podcast if you keep listening that I believe it's a smart strategy to avoid players with physical limitations because they are recovering from injuries or rehabbing from surgeries, whatever it is. And it pays to be patient. And in my opinion, it also pays to be a pessimist when it comes to this stuff, when it comes to evaluating players who are hurt or coming off injuries. And we haven't talked a lot about Jarvis Landry much at all in this in these 10 episodes of this podcast history so far, but I'm not touching him in drafts until it's reported that he's practicing in full without limitations. 
So let's move on to some Instagram questions before I run out of time once again. And as a reminder, if you want to have your fantasy football question answered on the show, I'm on Instagram at FantasyLawGuy. I guess I am on Twitter, too. One of these questions did come from Twitter. Same handle, at FantasyLawGuy. But in August, I'm going to be pushing out a lot of fantasy content on Instagram. I'll be giving the team previews there, so you'll want to follow me on Instagram. Again, at FantasyLawGuy. So let's go to the first question. It is from at BlakeBoswell1. The question is, what is your recommended tight end drafting strategy for PPR? What's the best value this year for early mid and late tight end selections that is obviously a loaded question there blake uh many layers to that and blake's just going for it all here he's basically just saying tell me tell me everything you know about tight ends and i'm just messing around but i do appreciate the question i'll start off by saying that tight ends in pretty much any position i don't start each year thinking to myself okay i'm a tight end late guy or i want kelsey and kittle in round two There's no strategy that I prefer on the surface. I prefer getting good tight ends. Strategy is part of the game, but in the end, it's about getting quality players. It's about hitting on your picks. And each year is different, and that's very important. So what I I do with tight ends is just like I do with every position. I find a few players that I like and I want to target. You know, the players that after my research has concluded, I view higher than ADP or higher than other experts. And then I craft my draft board or strategy in a way that creates an opportunity to draft these guys. So last year, I was huge on Evan Ingram. Like he was my main tight end. And he got hurt. So that sucked, at least for the second half of the season. But I viewed him as a fifth round pick when he was usually going in like round six or seven. And I don't normally like or plan to take the tight ends in the middle rounds. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests historically it's not the most sound strategy, but I worked my strategy around the players I liked. I did not fit the players into a strategy, if that makes sense. So your board should change each year. In some years, I fall in love with a few tight ends, so I'm going to go into drafts knowing that and working around that. In other years, I punt the position and I take a few or one of my favorite late-round tight ends And it all just depends on how the research goes, how the board falls. So it's not the most specific answer, but the theme is players in your board should dictate your strategy each year, not the other way around. Not create your preferred tight end strategy first and then draft players who fit that mold. And it's the same way with quarterbacks, but I think generally speaking, experts in the fantasy community kind of vouch for the take that we should draft tight ends early or late. That's the philosophy that a lot of them seem to be married to. I am not. As I've mentioned, I've seen studies that indicate middle round tight ends are historically the best bets. I mean, sorry, historically not the best bets. And I'm not dismissing those studies, but I do think that each year is different. And that doesn't mean that you can't find value in the middle rounds. I mean, Zach Ertz, for example, continues to outproduce his ADP every year as a middle round tight end and Evan Ingram was well on his way to do so before he got hurt for the 80th time in his young career. But tight end is such an interesting position and I haven't spent a lot of time talking about this year's tight end class for the fantasy football season in 2020. So let me kind of set that up. Let me set the stage 
before we get down into the weeds of specific players, which I definitely want to do. So Travis Kelsey and George Kittle are the early round tight ends once again. And Kelsey has actually finished as tight end one for the last four seasons in a row. And he's going usually around the middle of the second round. And Kittle is usually a few picks behind him. You can get him closer to the 2-3 turn, assuming you're in a 12-team league. And in round four, I usually see Mark Andrews and Zach Ertz get taken. And in expert leagues, that's usually a round higher. Like in round three, they'll tend to go. Because many expert leagues are actually tight end premium, which means they reward 1.5 points per reception for tight ends and one point for receptions for every other position. So after Mark Andrews and Zach Ertz near round four, there's kind of another tier drop or a gap between consensus tight end five, who is usually Darren Waller. In fact, I don't really know. I, I can't think of an expert's rankings where I haven't seen Darren Waller at tight end five. He's not my tight end five, so maybe I'm a little different there. But I, I, I can't think of one where I haven't seen where Waller isn't tight end five. So a little monotonous there, or a little groupthink there, in my opinion. But then there's another tier gap before tight end six, which is usually Evan Ingram. And he's usually like in round six, maybe like pick 70 overall is his average drop position. And then we see a group of tight ends that include Tyler Higby, who is not a big name, but he finished strongly for the Rams last season. Rob Gronkowski, who is a big name, didn't play football last season. Jared Cook, Hunter Henry. And they're all kind of bunched together. And that gets you to tight end 10. And those guys are generally taken between 75 and 100 overall. After that, there's this massive group of tight ends who the experts just have totally different opinions and totally different rankings on. That's where you'll start to see a lot of deviation. And I'm talking about like from, it's a huge group. I'm talking about like from tight end 11 to tight end 22. It's an enormous group of late round tight end prospects and different experts love different ones. And I'll I'll list them off in order of what I believe their ADP to be. Not how I would take them as a disclaimer, but how I typically see them come off in drafts. Hayden Hurst, who's replacing Austin Hooper in Atlanta. And then Austin Hooper himself goes. Noah Fant for Denver. TJ Hawkinson in Detroit. Mike Jasicki in in Miami. Ian Thomas in Carolina. And then I think there's a little drop-off before the clear tight end twos, like Dallas Goddard, Chris Herndon, Janu Smith, Jack Doyle, Blake Jarwin, Eric Ebron, Irv Smith, even Taysom Hill. No, I'm just kidding about that. He's not actually in that group. But I will say that Taysom Hill is listed as a tight end on mainstream sites like ESPN. I believe Yahoo too. Or they may have already had it. I'm not positive about Yahoo. But ESPN announced that Hill will be listed as a tight end this year. And he's not getting any fantasy love from any expert that I've seen. But it wouldn't totally shock me if, especially in local leagues, he becomes somewhat valuable like from a streaming stance where your tight ends on by you're looking at free agency and there's just nothing there this is horrible and maybe you want to plug in Taysom Hill for fun but anyway that's the lay of the land for the tight end position this year and I want to answer your question more specifically Blake and get into more of actual player evaluations but I did want to give that onset, that background for more casual players who haven't really had time to look at the rankings and and review past expert drafts. But that's generally how things are going so far. That's what you can expect from this position. So let's get into it here. Let's get into player evaluations. To answer the second part of your question, Blake, what 
who are my favorite early round, mid round, late round tight ends. George Kittle is the first tight end that I'm usually considering. I think the position really starts there for me. And he's somebody who I will have higher than a lot of experts when I release my board. And it's no knock to Travis Kelsey, but I just have him neck and neck with Kelsey. And Kelsey is more expensive than Kittle. And that gap, even if it's a few picks, is very important on my board because I like a lot of those or a few of those round two running backs. And I'm usually finding myself going running back in early to mid round two when Kelsey goes. But once those running backs are taken, I'd rather the elite tight ends like Kelsey and Kittle than the receivers like DeAndre Hopkins or Chris Godwin or Mike Evans. And Travis Kelsey, again, is usually going among those running backs. And George Kittle is not. He's usually picked after that running back tier is over with, like closer to the end of round two. And I've seen him go into round three in even some competitive drafts. So Kittle is such an easy pivot for me, especially if I have him even with Kelsey like I do. I don't really see a gap there, and I think the strong argument even exists that Kittle could be tight end one over Travis Kelsey, which I'm not really seeing much of anywhere. George Kittle, in 17 games last year, including playoffs, only averaged 13.97 points per game. That was tight end four pace. So not as great as obviously someone like Travis Kelsey, who was the tight end one last year. But Kittle started really slowly. And he was also, he missed time during weeks 10 and 11 against Seattle and Arizona. In Kittle's weeks 5 through 17, if you don't include playoffs, Kittle averaged 17.18 points per game, which would have outscored Kelsey. Now, Kittle did have a slow 2019 playoffs. He was not used a lot in the playoffs. The Niners just kind of steamrolled two of their opponents with the running game. They didn't even, Garoppolo attempted like nine passes in one of those games. They didn't need George Kittle for two of their three playoff games. So he he was slow in the playoffs. But after, from weeks five on in the regular season, Kittle outproduced Travis Kelsey. Ian Harditz had a great stat on George Kittle, the most yards per route run among 268 players with at least 100 targets over the last five seasons. Julio Jones is number one. Julio, get the stretch! At 2.82 yards per route run. Michael Thomas is number two at 2.43 yards per route run. And George Kittle is number three. That's among all players with at least 100 targets over the last five seasons. That's 268 players. George Kittle ranks number three in that metric, even including receivers. And George Kittle, his ranks among tight ends last season, first in yards per route run, as I just mentioned, first in drop rate, second in pro football focus run blocking grades, second in receptions, and second in yards per game, second in yak, which is yards after catch. These are all from Graham Barfield of FantasyPoints.com. Kittle also dealt with a magnitude of injuries last season. He, had, he was on the injury report for knee, ankle, and groin ailments. And he was also playing with a torn labrum. Kittle also 
was unlucky in the touchdown department last year. Kittle has never been on the positive end of touchdown luck. His touchdown totals in his three seasons are two, six, and six. So we could easily see Kittle was an elite touchdown scorer in college. We could at least easily see Kittle have positive touchdown regression there. And to that note, Kittle also had three touchdowns called back last season by penalties. It's the most in the league. And then Josh Norris had a, of Roto-World had a great stat. Just 53% of the 49ers' drives inside the red zone ended up in touchdowns last year. And that ranked 21st in the league. And he says that if the team leaps into the top 10 in that category, Kittle would certainly benefit. And I was game-logging the 49ers, and I noticed that the three touchdowns were called back. And that's huge. But also, there were just so many games when I noticed that the Niners or pass catchers just got nothing going for them in the second half of games because the 49ers were controlling the game so much and leading by so much on the scoreboard thanks to their running game and great defense. So game flow was just not advantageous for Kittle more often than not last year. And I think the Niners are going to be, they're not going to be blowing out teams like they did last season, which should force more volume from the passing game. And that's also great news because George Kittle is the only thing that 49ers have in their passing game. I just mentioned that Debo Samuel may miss a few games to open the season. He may start the season on PUP. He may not be the same in, in the first year he comes back from the injury. So Kittle is going to be the focal point of this offense and Jimmy Garoppolo's only reliable weapon. Not seriously. What's your name, man? Jimmy Garoppolo. My name is Jimmy Garoppolo. And he's also entering a contract year. So there are so many reasons to love George Kittle this year. I mean, Kittle should not make it past round two in drafts. And if I'm picking late in round two, he won't make it out of round two. And I think he could also return first round value, honestly. And he's going several picks after Travis Kelsey. And I like Kittle more than some of those round two running backs. So if the ones that I like are gone, Kittle becomes my primary objective in round two. And if you can somehow get him in round three, I mean, that's incredible. That is, that is borderline criminal activity. It's theft. So beyond Kittle, I'm finding myself more and more inclined to fitting in Mark Andrews and Zach Ertz on my teams. Especially, I did a mock in my last episode where Ertz just was kind of sitting there in round four. And that's an attractive option. I think with the receivers being so deep this season, you can get a quality receiver in rounds five or six. So ideally, I can squeeze a tight end in there and you know get the best of both worlds. And I've talked a lot in other episodes about why I've liked them. So I won't spend too much time on Ertz or Andrews. But I like both of them in round four. And, and as far as middle round tight ends go, I'm talking about rounds five through nine, like the Darren Waller, Evan Ingram, Tyler Higbee, Rob Gronkowski, Jared Cook, Hunter Henry. I think that Darren Waller is a strong fade this year at cost. Last year, Darren Waller had a really hot start. And in his first six games, he averaged 17.5, three points per game. 
And in the final seven games, and this is directly tied to when Hunter Renfro became more of a receiving option in the slot. In in Darren Waller's final seven games that he played with Hunter Renfro, he only averaged 9.63 points per game. And that was not top 12 tight end pace. So amazing in the first six games, but once Hunter Renfro got involved in this offense, and they kind of contradict each other because they're utilizing the same area of the field, things were not that great for Darren Waller after Hunter Renfro got more involved. And the Raiders don't just have Hunter Renfro into the equation. They added Henry Ruggs in the first round. They drafted Lynn Bowden at pick 80 overall, who's a running back slash wide receiver. Brian Edwards, I believe in the fourth round, they signed Nelson Aguilar. And they already they also signed Jason Witten, who is a Hall of Fame tight end who may just get some playing time on that notion alone. And they also have Foster Moreau out of LSU, who stole a few touchdowns from Waller last year. Waller only scored three times last year, despite having 90 catches for over 1,100 yards. And I think the common pro-Waller argument is that he's due for positive touchdown regression, that he should score more. And I think it's valid, but I think that the new weapons outweigh or kind of overcome that argument. He may double his touchdown production from three to six, but what good does that really do if he doesn't see anywhere near 90 catches or 1,100 receiving yards like he did last year? And the Raiders, you know, according to Pat Thorman, pace expert from EstablishedRun.com, the Raiders ran the ninth fewest plays last season and during neutral situations operated at the seventh slowest pace while passing at the fourth lowest rate. So I think that Darren Waller is in round five is one of the easiest fades in all of fantasy football this year. And Evan Ingram also. Evan Ingram cannot be trusted to stay healthy. And I loved him last year, and he was playing great before his injury. I think, you know, he was looking like a huge big hit. I think he was tight end three before going down in like week seven. But you aren't really getting an injury discount that I would want with Evan Ingram this year. He's only going like a round later than he was last year. And even in the scenario where Evan Ingram does manage to stay healthy, which has never happened, there's just so many pieces of the pie in New York now. Golden Tate was suspended for the first four games last year, and Sterling Shepard missed some of those games in the beginning of last year when Evan Ingram did start strongly. You could argue that Darius Slayton also not really being in the picture yet as he was a rookie and didn't even really contribute until like week three or four. Him also not being in the picture, you could make the argument that that's why Evan Ingram had such great numbers before he got hurt last year. So now they have Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard, Darius Slayton. They also have Saquon Barkley healthy now. Again, Barkley missed some of those that time where Ingram was having good games as well. And Jason Garrett is running the show in New York. And that's just too many red flags to justify taking Evan Ingram in the middle rounds. So Hunter Henry is another one who I simply just don't understand his average draft position being so high. Henry was tight end eight in points per game last season with 12.5 points per game in 12 games. 
and I get that there's talent there, but I'm not going to trust Tyrod Taylor and Justin Herbert to deliver the ball to Hunter Henry, especially when there's already Keenan Allen, there's already Austin Eckler, and Henry's value would have to come in the red zone, and they have Mike Williams there too. So the Chargers project to get in the red zone a lot less frequently than they did and score far fewer touchdowns than they did with Phillip Rivers running the show. Now it's your turn. So Hunter Henry is another pass for me. I'm surprised that his that his ranking or his average draft position isn't closer to like tight end 12, tight end 13, rather than tight end 9 or tight end 10 where he's at. Rob Gronkowski. Is going tight end 9. And I'm not on board with that either. I think people are overly optimistic on Gronk because he's fun to root for and they see the Brady to Gronk connection and they're getting some sort of nostalgia from it. But first of all, Gronk could be completely washed. We have no idea what to expect. So I'd rather target players who I've actually seen play football lately or have seen play good football lately. The last time we saw Gronk, he was not a good football player. He was running on half a tank, if that. And second, even if he can still play, even if this year off from football has rejuvenated his body and he's he's healthy again and he's ready to roll, I don't think the upside is as huge as being stated in a Bruce Arians offense that really never features the tight ends. I mean, we saw with O.J. Howard last season. You know something? No soup for you. Come back one year. O.J. Howard is still there. Cameron Brait is still there. Those guys are good players. And I think we may see a tight end rotation of sorts. And to that effect, Bruce Arians said that two tight end personnel will be the base offense in Tampa. But I believe that when I see it. It's been years since Arians has had a good tight end. And Arians has consistently trotted out receivers, three, three wide, four wide receivers at a high rate over the years. Especially when Chris Godwin can be utilized in the slot. And, and I haven't even mentioned the wide receivers. Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, they make it so where Gronk is at best a distant, distant third option for this Bucks team. I will let somebody else take the plunge and draft Rob Gronkowski. So that kind of leaves me with Jared Cook and Tyler Higbee as the, the two kind of mid to late round tight end options for me. And I've spoken about how I think experts are kind of sleeping on Jared Cook, and he's ranked low because experts think Emmanuel Sanders will be there, and they think that, well, he will be there. But they think that that's going to hurt Jared Cook's production, And they also think he's going to regress in the touchdown department. He scored nine times on 43 catches last year, so that's a valid argument. But I think Cook's touchdown rate is naturally going to be high just because Drew Brees is his quarterback and just because the Saints are getting to the red zone more often than other teams and they're more efficient in the red zone. But, But Jared Cook was outstanding 
from week 10 on when Drew returned from his thumb surgery and his tight end, his PPR t- point totals weeks 10 through 18, I'm including the playoff game here, 13 point4, 11.3, 21.9, 11.5, 20.4, 9.4, 23.4, 12.4, and 10.4. So his worst game was nine points. And he was tight end two in that span. Tight end two, only behind Travis Kelsey. And obviously Jared Cook's ADP right now is between tight end eight and tight end 10. And the other thing that I even haven't mentioned is that one of those games, the 20.4 game against the 49ers, he did that in eight snaps. That was when he caught two long kind of bomb touchdowns in the first quarter of that game and then sustained a concussion on the second touchdown catch, which I thought may or may not have been a catch, but that's not the point. They ruled it a catch, and he only played eight snaps in that game. So that was a shootout. So we could be looking at an even bigger or more persuasive sample from Jared Cook had he been able to play out that full game because that was an offensive fireworks show in the Superdome. And he had already scored twice in eight snaps. So Cook is a, is a game-logging favorite of mine. And obviously he's athletic. And I like the fact that he's entering year two with the Saints. So I'm in on Jared Cook. But not to the point where you know, I'm reaching aggressively for him. And the same is the case with Tyler Higby. The curious case of Tyler Higby here. He, Tyler Higby is one of the most polarizing players in the entire fantasy expert community. I swear. He, he may be the most polarizing player in all of the industry. The debates for and against this guy have been so intense in the expert community. Tyler Higby is a player who, if you're not aware, he did absolutely nothing for the first like 40 games of his career. And he'd even done diddly poo offensively last year as well. We couldn't do diddly poo offensively we couldn't make a first down we couldn't run the ball we didn't try to run the ball we couldn't complete a pass we sucked that was until the final five weeks of the season in the wake of Brandon Cook's his second concussion and in an injury where they just kind of shut him down and then an injury to tight end Gerald Everett who has kind of always always shared the role with with Tyler Higby as the Rams tight end Everett got hurt and the Rams kind of shifted to this two tight end set, and they played it at a rate that was only second to Philadelphia, I believe. And Tyler Higby was made the focal point of this offense down the stretch. And defenses were caught completely off guard. Just as off guard as experts, and just as caught off guard as fantasy managers as well. I'm going to read the lines to you, the receiving lines to you in the final five games, just yards and catches. That's it. Week 13, seven catches of 107 yards. Week 14, seven catches, 116 yards. Week 15, 12 catches, 111 yards. Yeah! It's working! Yeah! 16, nine catches, 104 yards. So four straight 100-yard games for Tyler Higby and at least seven catches. No way! I don't believe it! Week 17, Eight catches for 84 yards. He had two touchdowns in that span as well. And according to Bobby Sylvester of FantasyPros.com, Tyler Higby 
was the only tight end in NFL history to have 84 or more receiving yards in five straight games. The only tight end to ever do that, Tyler Higby. Something's not right here. So in those final five games, from a game logging perspective, again, 56 targets, 43 catches, 522 yards, two touchdowns, and 21.44 points per game. That is five points per game more than Travis Kelsey averaged last season. Five points per game more. So this was truly an incredible stretch. Tyler Higby won a lot of people's leagues for them as a waiver wire gym. And now there are Tyler Higby fans out there who want to take his five-game sample as not necessarily sustainable. Nobody's thinking that that's going to continue. It's not, spoiler alert. But maybe that he'll carry over some of that strong finish into 2020. Maybe he'll be a key part of the Rams' offense. But the majority of the expert opinion on this, the, the, the majority school of thought here, the other side here, is the Higby detractors. Those who are not drafting Higby because they see this as some sort of massive fluke. Be careful, it's a trap! And this isn't to say that no flukes like this on a five-game sample have ever happened before, because certainly they have. But the opening argument to that stance is that Tyler Higby reached 50 receiving yards in just two of 58 games prior to this massive five-game stretch to close the season. Two of 58. Two of 58 games where he only had 50 or more receiving yards before his amazing stretch where he had four straight 100-yard games. And that's by Jared Smola of DraftSharks.com. So that's a huge stat here. And that's usually the opening argument is this guy was a nothing. Not just nothing. He was a nothing. He was a nothing, a zero in the fantasy world prior to week 13 of the 2019 season. And this guy's in his fourth year as a pro. So it's also worth noting that two of the games were against Arizona, who had one of the worst defenses defending tight ends in the history of the NFL. One of the worst tight end defending defenses ever. That's why they spent their first round pick on Isaiah Simmons, Cleveland, I mean, sorry, Clemson linebacker slash safety, solely to try to cure that illness that they had trying to cover tight ends. They couldn't do it. But that's always a tricky, tricky argument because the obvious counter to that is, well, what was he supposed to do in those games? He dominated the defense that was placed in front of him, that he played against. So how can we hold that against him? And that's a fair point, but it does provide more context to maybe why Tyler Higby was able to go on this incredible run. So it shouldn't be dismissed, the soft opponents that he played. But the biggest reason experts are mostly anti-Higby is because they believe that tight end Gerald Everett will soon return and have just as big of a role, if not bigger, than Tyler Higby because he's a much more athletic prospect and they believe he's better than Higby. They attribute Higby's success last season solely due to the fact that Everett got hurt. And it is true that Tyler Higby played a season, he played a season high 72 snaps in week 13 when Gerald Everett was out. That was the first game he missed after seeing only 23 to 48 snaps per game in weeks 1 through 12. Between 23 and 48 snaps, 1 through 12, and then Everett gets hurt, and all of a sudden in week 13, Higby plays 72 snaps. All of a sudden, he's a full-time player. But it's also true that Everett was actually only out 
for three of those five amazing games. Everett returned in Week 16, and that was Higby's fourth straight 100-yard game. But Everett only played four snaps in that game. And in Week 17, Everett was not on the injury report, but he was a healthy scratch. He played zero snaps. So the question is, was Everett actually really healthy upon quote-unquote returning, and was he phased out the offense thanks to Higby's sheer dominance? Or was he just hurt and McVay didn't really want to risk playing a hurt Jared Everett in the final two weeks of a season where the Rams really kind of weren't making the playoffs? Although they did surprisingly go 9-7 and seven last year. But, so I guess they were somewhat in contention. But the Rams just seem to have no interest in playing Gerald Everett down the stretch even when he quote-unquote returned from injury, and we just don't really know how healthy he really was. So it's also worth noting that the Rams, before last season, before this run, handed Higby a four-year, $31 million extension to his contract. And Higby and Everett were drafted in the same draft class, I believe. So they extended, or at least it was one year, they're one year away from each other. So they extended Higby before they extended Everett. Or they, they extended Higby and not, they did not extend Everett. Everett is entering his contract year for what it's worth. His final year and his, his deal, his rookie deal. But Everett surprisingly had outproduced and outsnapped Higby despite Higby's contract extension through the first 12 weeks of the season before Everett got hurt. So even though they handed Higby this crazy deal and they did not signed Gerald Everett to a similar deal or to any deal at all. Gerald Everett was their starting tight end. Gerald Everett was the guy that they were using most. So that's just another variable or another confusing aspect of this whole situation. So is this a Gerald Everett got hurt and Higby took his job situation? Or is this a Gerald Everett got hurt and Higby took advantage of the situation, but Everett's going to get his big rollback and you know they're, they're going to split the tight end usage just like they had been? Are the tight ends going to be in some type of even rotation and where they kind of cancel each other out like Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith in Minnesota were last year? Or is feeding Tyler Higby in the passing game now a big part of this Rams offense? So Sean McVay actually touched on the issue in April. You know, He said, I'm really, quote, I'm really, really excited about what Gerald Everett's going to do. I think Tyler Higby did a phenomenal job but I think Gerald Everett's a guy that I've got to do a better job of utilizing his skill set because he's a difference maker. And that would seem to be kind of a shot from the head coach on Tyler Higby here, referring to Everett as a different difference maker, seemingly because of his athleticism. And, you know, although Higby did a phenomenal job, it doesn't seem like, or it just seems like that he wants Everett to remain a huge part of this offense if not even overtake Higby. So that quote would seem to lend favor to the argument, the anti-Higby argument. But the other question is that, you know, this was a huge scheme change midseason where the Rams, who have notoriously played three wide receivers, one running back, one tight end, like that was Sean McVay's go-to formation on the field. They changed their main formation because defenses were catching on to McVay's scheme. So are we going to see this two tight end formation continue? Are we going to go back to the mainly three wide receiver, one tight end personnel, and then Higby and Everett are going to have to duke it out or rotate as that one tight end? 
So this is such an interesting debate. And I could do an entire podcast on the pros and cons of Tyler Higby. And I almost have, but one that goes to even more depth than this does. The range of outcomes with Tyler Higby is enormous. And Higby, he could either fade into a complete oblivion, like so many people who have just had, you know, a four or five game stretch and then just did nothing. They were all hype and did nothing after that. And the oblivion that was Tyler Higby in the first 40 something games, 50 something games of his career. Or, or he could finish as a top three tight end if he keeps up a run that's even remotely similar to this. The ultimate boom or bust pick at tight end this year is Tyler Higby. And again, the majority school expert school of thought thinking is to fade Higby and that he's just a flash in the pan. This thing will never hold together. They are not buying in to any hype that could be generated from the final five games of the 2019 season, although historic. However, I tend to be on the minority side, actually. I'm I'm being somewhat contrarian here because this isn't a situation where Higby's average draft position, like in round four, where you're taking like Zach Ertz or, or Mark Andrews and you're forgoing the opportunity taking a really good wide receiver. The opportunity cost is so much more substantial in round four than it is in round seven or eight, or even in round six or five where Darren Waller's going. Higby's going at tight end eight, like after round seven. And for what you can get here, the ceiling of Tyler Higby, I'd argue that the cost is actually very affordable. And this isn't to say that, oh, I'll be so surprised if Higby just disappears and he's a total flop, total bust. My strategy on Higby is not because I think that's not out of the range of possibility. That's certainly a possibility. I'm not denying that. But my my main argument is that he is cost affordable enough to be able to take that chance that he is a top three player. The ceiling is so much higher than other tight ends because the thing with tight ends is that the position is so weak in general that after Darren Waller, most of these tight ends are touchdown dependent, where you need a touchdown in a given week to have a, a positive week from your tight end. And while there's a narrative this year that the tight end position is deeper than usual because of so many late round flyers that could end up being hits, although they say that every year, that tight end is deeper, and it, it just never winds up being that way because tight ends get hurt at a much higher rate than people think. But even if you believe in this year's late round tight end class, or there's two or three that you love, none of them are really proven on their teams. I mean, I'll rattle off this list again. I mean, Rob Gronkowski, new team, didn't play football last year. Hunter Henry, new quarterback. Austin Hooper, new team. Noah Fant, not proven. TJ Hawkinson, not proven. Mike Jasicki, not proven. Dallas Goddard, he needs an injury to Ertz. Johnu Smith, not proven. Chris Herndon, not proven. Irv Smith, not proven. Ian Thomas, not proven. Blake Jarwin, not proven. All of these late round tight ends are just projections. Where you saw, we've seen glimpses of production in the past, or maybe we haven't even done that, but we've seen athletic traits and we've seen, you know, maybe a game or two in the past where they've put it all together and you're hoping that that they're more consistent or they're hoping that they're going to be more prevalent in the 2020 season. But none of these tight ends have shown they can string together even two 100 receiving yard games in a row. So, and, so and, and Higby did it almost five times. 
So experts can laugh at or mock Tyler Higby's five-game sample of brilliance, and they can say it was only five games. And plenty of experts are completely dismissing Higby. They're doing just that. But they can laugh all they want. The fact is, we haven't seen that sort of game-by-game production from any of the tight ends they probably prefer. From any of these guys. At least we know Tyler Higby can do it. We know he's capable of producing if the situation is right. We don't know if the situation is going to stay like that. But we don't know if these other tight ends are even capable of producing in that scenario. We don't know if they have it in them. We don't know if they can put up two games in a season like Tyler Higby just did in his final five games. For a lot of them, we haven't even seen them put up a seven-catch, 100-yard game. And I, I would bet on none of them we've seen them do it in back-to-back games. And Tyler Higby pretty much did that five times in a row. And nobody in the history of the NFL, not Tony Gonzalez, not Antonio Gates, not Rob Gronkowski, nobody had a stretch as good as Tyler Higby's in the final five games of the 2019 season. So I think the small sample argument is a little overblown when you look at the big picture and you realize that none of these late-round tight ends even possess the upside to even sniff what we've already seen Tyler Higby do. So for the mid to late rounds, I like landing Jared Cook and Tyler Higby as opposed to Darren Waller, Evan Ingram, Rob Gronkowski, Hunter Henry, or or punting the position. So I'm going to move on to my next question. It's also a tight end question. And this is from Logan from New Orleans. And he wants to know who this year's George Kittle and Darren Waller are. And... Actually, I mean, geez, in the interest of time, I'm going to save that for the next episode, Logan. So I'm sorry about that, but we got to get to Ben Vollenweider's question because I did promise him specifically that I would answer it, and I kept pushing it back and back. I can't believe that it's taken me 50 minutes to answer Blake's question. Thanks, Blake, for giving me the most broad question ever. And I didn't even get to the late round tight ends. I was going to kind of Couple that up with Logan's question about who this year's breakout tight end will be. But I will save that for my next podcast. It is a great question. Uh, But let's move on to Ben's question right here. And his question is as followed. He says, my league is picking the, the draft order soon. I get to pick my pick second. Pick three was taken first. Should I just play it safe with pick one and take Christian McCaffrey? I've been mentally preparing myself to take Barkley at pick two, but this guy t- uh, taking pick three is throwing me off. So that's a really interesting question here. And if I had to choose, I, the way I perceive this question, Ben, is that you're basically asking me which pick would I choose if I had any pick in the draft. And I would choose pick one. And this isn't even about Christian McCaffrey and the fact that he scored eight more points per game than the next highest running back last season. It's, it's, it's actually not even about Christian McCaffrey. This is just about flexibility and it's about odds. And in terms of odds, the higher you pick in your draft, the better chance you have to win your league. I did a whole two-minute warning rant about that in an earlier episode. I think it was like the end of episode two or three about third round reversal. But essentially, before you even draft the top four picks in your league, their win rate is almost as double historically compared to picks 10 through 12 over just a massive sample size, hundreds of thousands of drafts in, in different years. 
have revealed that it's, it's always advantageous to pick early. And every year is different, but I just hate when experts say, oh, I'm kind of preferring a late pick this year. I think that's just moronic. I think it's dumb, and I think it's just getting too cute. Just, I just feel like they're just trying to be different, and they're just obviously ignoring this massive advantage, and they're doing a huge disservice to their listeners when they say that. It doesn't matter what the year is. Every year, you want an early pick. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it and try to say, you know, oh, you can win at every pick. It doesn't really matter. It's about the players you want. Yeah, that's all true. That's all fine. We all understand that. It's not like you can't win if you have pick 12. Why would you play if that were true? But that doesn't mean, fantasy football is a game of probability. It's a game of odds. And you want to increase the odds in your favor. So you should always want a top four pick every year, no matter what. Because you have better odds to win. It's just a fact. But specifically, then if you're asking if you should take pick one or two, which I kind of think you are, I think you should stick with pick one. Because even if picks one and two over the long haul are have even odds to win the league, pick one gives you more flexibility from the get-go. Because if you happen to like Saquon Barkley, you mentioned that you've done a lot of research on Saquon Barkley and you assumed you were taking him. If you happen to like Barkley over CMC, you can still take him as one at one. The only advantage to taking pick two, at least that I see, because a lot of people just say, oh, well, you know, maybe pick two will be better because you can get an earlier pick in round two. Well, then you have a one pick later in, in round three. So that doesn't, that's not make sense. That's not a great argument. The only decent argument that I can see, or the small advantage, is that you, if you're at pick two, you can tell... You can play off of what one team is doing in their draft, and you can adjust your picks accordingly. For example, in round six, if you can't decide between a running back and receiver, and you look at team one, and he has already three running backs, a quarterback, and one wide receiver, you know maybe he's probably going to go receiver there with at least one of his turn picks. So you can take the receiver on your board instead of the running back, and maybe the running back will get it back to you. Because team one is, is likely not taking your running back. So you can look at his team, team one, to kind of make more efficient picks. But I don't think that's a big enough advantage to, you know, it is, it is somewhat important, but it's not big enough for me to give up pick one. Especially because what if Christian McCaffrey gets hurt? Well, then team one's taking Barkley. And you have to take Ezekiel Elliott. You didn't mention him. You said you wanted Barkley. What if Barkley's higher on your board than Zeke? Well, you picking pick two now, if Barkley or CMC gets hurt, well, guess what? You're you're stuck with Zeke. What happens if Zeke gets hurt and then Barkley gets COVID and he misses the first week of the season? That's why I think that whoever picked team three, I mean, sorry, whatever team picked pick three first is a total bozo because one of the big three running backs could easily get hurt in the next month or get COVID or whatever. And then all of a sudden team three has to end up with Camara, which, which is fine. There's not, there's anything wrong with that, but his primary objective was clearly to end up with one of the big three running backs. That's why he took pick three to begin with. So yeah, don't get cute with it. Just take pick one, decide which of the big three you like best. And pick one will always give you that flexibility to take who you like in case there is an injury or in case one of these players does have COVID and may miss the start of the season. You never know. So 
Pick one gives you that flexibility. I would say, I would advise if you don't take pick one, definitely take pick two. Again, you don't want a late pick. Just don't try to be, don't outsmart yourself. Picking early seems like it's the best advantage and it is the best advantage. So act accordingly. All right, let's get to my two-minute warning rant of the week. This comes from a question uh, from a listener that listened to episode two or three about third-round reversal, wanted to implement it, but then the league just did not go for it. They had a league vote, didn't pass, and he wants to know another way we can possibly make a snake draft more evenly balanced or more fair. So I've spoken about how teams with early picks and snake drafts, they have an inherent advantage over teams that pick late. Things like third round reversal can help, but if your league doesn't want to take any drastic measures, there is one small move you can make to help with this imbalance. You can make it to where your draft has an even number of rounds rather than an odd number of rounds. Why? Because if you have an odd number of rounds, the team that picks first in round one also gets to pick first in the final round. And that is not fair. The teams at each end of the draft should pick first and last in the same amount of rounds. The rule of thumb or way to check this is to see whoever, ha- if whoever has the first pick should always end up with Mr. Irrelevant. That way, the draft is balanced as opposed to the early pickers getting an even greater advantage than described because they also get to pick early in the final round as well as the first round because it doesn't snake again after that. The snake should always end with the person who started it. That is literally the purpose of the snake draft, to make sure everyone, at least in theory, gets an equal opportunity to pick early and late in the same amount of rounds. A draft with an odd number of rounds does not accomplish this. It skews it. So what do we need to do? Well, most people just assume that the number of rounds that you have in your draft just will depend on the total number of players you have in your starting lineup plus bench. But if you're unsure about that and you have 10 starters and you let's say you can't decide between five bench spots or six bench spots, you should always lean towards favoring a draft with an even number of rounds, an even number of roster spots. This is something for commissioners to think about when they are setting up their leagues this month. Remember the phrase, even makes it even. And that will conclude today's episode. As a reminder, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, it only takes fewer than five seconds, if you're good with your fingers, to hit subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating. Assuming you liked it, you made it this far, that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.